Well, hey, church, how are you? Lovely to see you. Um, I'm thrilled to preach today. Just absolutely frothing um, to be able to talk with you um, really in our, in our Build Up to Easter, our Lent series. And today I'm talking um, to you from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, talking about Jesus and how he cleared the temple in uh, verses 12 through 17, uh, actually in, in all of the Gospels, but we're going to be looking at Matthew in particular. And it's pretty cool because this is the second day of Holy Week. So Palm Sunday is the pretext to what we're about to read, and then really the first thing he does that week, which is the second day of that week, is um, is what we're going to read about today. And so I'm really excited to, to read it to you and to spend some time going through the scriptures and figuring out what God has for us today um, through this example of him clearing the temple. And so the Bible says here, Matthew 17, in verse 12 through 17, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were there buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lamb came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting and the temple called Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city, uh, to Bethany, where he spent the night. Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to us today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I want to talk to you today. Uh, I guess the title of the sermon is called You Had One Job. And uh, but I want to I really want to intro today's um, sermon and what we're about to talk about with some words actually from Justice Plowman, who uh, spoke last week um, with Caleb around some Lent thoughts and has really put together for us, uh, I guess, a bit of a Lent devotional or a Lent um, plan and structure for our speaking series over this period of time. And he said in his notes to me, and I think to all the preachers, he said this, it's a season of self-reflection is Lent and repentance, a time to examine our hearts and prepare ourselves for the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a time for self-reflection, repentance, examination, preparation. Oh, what great words he's written there. He's got me in the right spaces, and my prayer is that I can then use those words to get us together as a church in the right place. Self-reflection, repentance. Um, I remember some time ago, I watched King Kong, the latest version, the Peter Jackson version, some years ago after he had directed the, the Lord of the Rings series. And I think King Kong was his next large blockbuster after that, that trilogy. And I remember watching it and like, you know, it's neither here nor there as a film. I think it's fine. It's probably the best recent rendition of King Kong now, as, as, as the original movie stands, as opposed to some sort of like Godzilla, like Colab, you know. Um, but I was watching it with Nadia. And, you know, I, I'm a big Adrian Brody fan, so I'm, I'm loving watching Adrian Brody. Jack Black's in that film, and it's great. And then right at the end, um, spoiler alert, um, King Kong's been around for some time, so if you're surprised by this, then, then I guess I'm not really sorry. Um, but Nadia cried when King Kong, the giant gorilla, died. She cried. 
And when she was, as she was crying, I was like, hey, like, are you okay? What's wrong? She's like, he did the monkey dies, you know? And, and I laughed. I was like, David's King Kong. It's a story as old as time. Everybody knows that the monkey dies. And she says, I didn't know. And it was a picture to me of someone who was experiencing the death of King Kong in this movie for the first time and someone who had thought about it a hundred times. And the scriptures, we see moments where we see people experience things for the first time. And then I think we're those like me during King Kong who lost the emotion and have experienced things a hundred times. I guess I say that to say this. I want us to approach Easter this year like it's our first Easter. Like the three Marys at the cross. Like the three Marys that waited at the tomb. Versus us who have maybe experienced Easter many, many times. And it has become um, chocolate Easter bunnies and Easter egg hunts. When it should really be so much more than that. So for us today, let's have that, that first time adoration of Easter. Like Nadia did watching that movie for the first time. Let's have today for us what the, the writer of Revelation says is our first love and not a first love that's compared to a lukewarm kind of love. Let's approach this Easter with self-reflection, repentance, examination. Let's approach it as we prepare ourselves to figure out what it was that Jesus was doing and what that means for us. Recently, I was talking with a friend actually about a topic that wasn't so great. We were talking about moral failures and about how we felt like in the last few years there's been more people in church leadership falling because of moral, moral issues, because of their morality, than we felt like had in days gone by. And he said, you know, Levi, when God gives someone an opportunity, even through being found out for what's been happening in their private life, he says, Levi, it's a kindness. I said, what do you mean a kindness? He said, it's a kindness. He said, because you, would you rather God found out and, and um, exposed you on this side of eternity or the other side? Because at least on this side, his kindness, the Bible says, leads us to repentance. His loving kindness leads us to repentance. At least on this side, we have a chance to repent. It's a kindness. And I guess for these next few weeks as we approach Easter 2023, that this is our kindness this is our moment. This is our opportunity to get ourselves right. Realize what he's done for us. Repent, prepare, and celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we see here a passage about Jesus doing something quite gnarly, isn't it really? He's, he's arrived in Jerusalem to a huge fanfare. People with um, palm Sunday, palm branches, throwing their cloaks on the ground. He's come in on the, the colt of a donkey and he's cruised into Jerusalem like a king. It's, a, it's, a, it's, this, it's this really cool um, picture of this humble entrance, but at the same time, the sense of royalty, dignity, nobility. And people are so thrilled. They realize that it's the, the, the one and only Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and Everything's about to change. And the first thing he does is he walks up to the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and those selling doves. And the Bible then says that he says, you have turned the temple into a house of robbers when it should be called a place of prayer. So there's a few things here that are quite interesting. 
And I think particularly interesting for us is he references in this verse, he coins phrases or throws back to two Old Testament uh, major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Jesus has walked in on Palm Sunday. He's been welcomed as, you know, the one true king. The first thing he does is he clears the temple. And while he's clearing the temple, he uses words from Jeremiah and Isaiah. Major prophets from the Old Testament. Interesting. So what did they say? Well, Isaiah says that the Lord says to the people of Israel, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, where burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Interesting. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 7, 11, hear the word, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. Perform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live. Uh, sorry, reform. The Bible says reform your ways and actions, and I will let you live in this place. Will you burn incense to Baal and then come here and say that we are safe? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers for you? So God is saying, reform your ways and then come and worship me. Don't light incense to Baal and, and worship idols and then come and then think you are safe. Has this house, which bears my name, says God, become a den of robbers to you? Jeremiah says, that my house will be called a house of prayer to all nations. That's Isaiah. And Jeremiah says, how can you come into this house after worshipping another God, think you're safe? It's now turned into a den of robbers because of what you've done. Interesting language there. I guess we understand quite simply, um, although there are some wonderful complexities to prayer, we understand prayer, don't we? And we understand when, when God speaks through Isaiah and says that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, we kind of go, yeah, that's reasonably self-explanatory. And I think it's quite literal. But that it's become a den of robbers? And that's a question there. Has, has, has this house become a den of robbers to you? Well, who's stealing? There's no reference to theft taking place. There's no reference to criminals in the place. He overturns tables of people doing specific things. So let's look then, if it's not literal, let's look at the picture. Let's contextually try and figure out what it is that God is trying to say to us through this verse. I think if anything, as I read all of these passages together, I realize that what's being stolen is this concept in the Old Testament and then quite clearly here in the New Testament, where we are called because of the life of Christ and because of our loving Father to worship freely. But the temple courts have become a marketplace and a place of commerce where not all nations could come, but only those who could afford it could be there. Interesting that the Bible speaks of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers and those selling doves because a dove was the lowest form of sacrifice and worship. That if you couldn't afford anything, you could at least find a bird. It would be like if, if you can't afford to bring an offering to God, at least you could have found a sparrow. But for sure, you could just grab a pigeon. Like 100% just grab a seagull. But like grab yourself a dove, the cleanest of common birds. That's the minimum that you could bring, but they were selling them so as to make worship of God and the worship of Him in His temple something that was out of touch for those that couldn't afford it. That if anything was being stolen to create this phrase, a den of robbers, 
It was, I think, that the purpose of the temple had been stolen. as a place that was free for all. And in Matthew 21, we see that it was children who came, the least, who came and worshipped him. That was, that was for everybody. But those interested in commerce and those interested in corruption had changed the nature. But I think even further to that, if we could look even one step further into what's taking place in the picture, we think that God is trying to say to us through this verse, is that when we look at the, the whole concept of Jesus clearing the temple, well, it's not the only time that the temple is talked about, is it? Right through the Old Testament, we have tents and tabernacles and meeting places and synagogues, temples, physical locations. But as Jesus came, wasn't his life to a degree to remove the necessity of a physical location and by the bringing of his Holy Spirit, the sending of God's Spirit to us and our eternal life purchased with Christ and our new life in him. This is the whole purpose to eliminate the necessity of a house of worship, a house of prayer, a physical temple. But we have now become that temple. In fact, Jesus says in John 2, in this scripture, in the Gospel of John, Speaking of the tearing down that the Pharisees say, who, who gives you the right and the authority to do what you've done? He says, you, will build, you tear down this temple, but I'll rebuild it in three days. And John 2 verse 21 says, but the temple that he had spoken about was his body. Interesting. So we have Jesus coming and clearing the physical temple. And then when he's confronted about it, he says, you could tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Verse 21 of John chapter 2 says, but the temple he was talking about was his body. As a, um, a prophetic statement for the death and resurrection of Christ at Easter. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, the Apostle Paul writes, talking about the fact that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so, so let's journey this through. Jesus clears the temple. He references Jeremiah, den of robbers, and Isaiah, house of prayer for all nations, clears the temple. Then when confronted, he says, you can tear the temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. But he was talking about, John says in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 21, I'll rebuild it in three days. Talking about his body. So as act in the temple, he straight away goes, look further than just a physical location. Den of robbers, people are like, there are no robbers here. No, look further than the tangible manifestation or the literal translation or the picture of what he's trying to paint. What is he actually saying? And then the Apostle Paul takes it even further and says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I've been talking now for 14 minutes. This is an intro, so I'll move quick. But I've said this to, to, to try and get you to the point where Jesus clearing the temple means more than, more than what he physically did. But for us, in a new covenant relationship with Christ, through the literature of Paul, we understand that the temple is not a physical location, but the temple, friends, is us. So now that we understand that, let us have a look at the scriptures again and figure out what Jesus has done in the context of us. Imagine now Jesus clearing out your temple. Imagine now Jesus coming into your place of worship and finding things that he might overturn. Money changes, commerce, corruption, 
I'm not, I'm not going at people here who have a specific issue with money. I think much broader than that, I think that speaks about one of our primary, in the West, primary issues around idolatry. God's number one, God's number one. No, 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 I really believe he is. is he? I'm preaching to myself right now, as much as I'm preaching to you. But I think what Jesus was doing was he was saying, things become more of a priority in our lives, but he's overturned, over, he's overturning those. What a great word. He overturned the table of the money changes. He's overturning our priority order to say that it, it doesn't matter what you have or don't have. I was talking to my friend. I said, where were you born, bro? He's Filipino. I said, where were you born? He said, born in Toronto. What about your parents? He said, yeah, born in the Philippines. I said, what's one of your standout experiences when you go back to the Philippines? And he looks at me and he's, he just says, he says, joy. Because I realized that the amount of joy that those kids in the Philippines have when all they're doing is playing in the puddle. I've got kids reaching out, asking for money as I drive past. And with that small corner, that little bit of money, there's so much joy because they live such humble lives. That's all they have. And we can get caught up when you knew this, knew that. I've got to think about this. Mine's always busy. And God says, no, let me overturn your priorities. I'm number one. You're all I need. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough worry for itself. Focus on today. Jesus is number one. We're, we're preaching Sermon on the Mount here today. And then the second thing he says is, so he says, he basically goes, I'm going to overturn and make sure that I'm the priority, that there are other idols in your life that are going to be torn down. And the second thing he does is then does the same thing with the table of the, those selling doves. Those selling doves, well, just a throwback, the lowest form of worship and sacrifice. In other words, and it was in the outer courts, with Gentiles would come. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not only going to overturn your priorities in your own temple to get you ready for Easter, get you in the right, get you in the right moment. So, sorry, that's for us today, but what about what about then? He's doing that the week of his death. The week of his death. On the Monday. The rise on Sunday, very next day. Gotta get people in the right, gotta get people focusing on me as their number one. Give up. They want number one, the number one focus of their life. No other idols. I have a Isaiah, Jeremiah, yeah, you got it. It's gotta be about. It's gotta be about me. Friends, it's gotta be about Jesus. And then the second thing is, you ever turn to the doves, the doves, which is to make sure that all are welcome. And at that point, not just the Jews, but everybody is welcome in his temple, in his house. Do we have a life that exemplifies those values? Like he's number one? And like everybody's welcome? Or is he number seven and just my friends? Don't get me wrong. If he's seven, that's actually not bad. And I don't mean to throw a shade on you and your friends. Because if you, that you have friends is amazing. That's the best thing ever. But to have friends is, is a blessing and a privilege. To have anything in your life is a blessing and a privilege so that you can then be a giver and scatter your seed widely so that all might come to know him as Lord. Which leads me to this phrase. And I think that if Jesus is saying anything in this picture, in this moment, I think he's saying something along the lines of this, and let me paraphrase. You had one job. You had one job. He turns up to the temple and looks around, looks at the priests and all the people in religious positions of authority, those in privilege, and he says, dang, you had one job. And then he goes about clearing the temple and the deafening silence of 
the temple being emptied by Christ, glad at the time, empty when it's done, would have been truly, truly remarkable. You had one job. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Bro, you had one job. You, like, come on. Like, you turn up to work and someone's supposed to do something, it's supposed to bring a whiteboard for a meeting, you know, it's not there, come on. You had one job. You know, I'm here today and Matthew's here with me, and he had one job, and he fulfilled that one job. I turn up, cameras are ready, he's there, box of birds, he was early. When someone says they're going to do something, this man's a man of integrity, he's here early to make it happen. It's kind of, it's kind of what we just expect of others, isn't it? That they will do what they say they will do. But when someone doesn't do it, we use that phrase, bro, you had one job. It's like when, a, when our kids would go to the beach, we'll go down, go down to the lake. It's all right, guys, grab your sunscreen, yeah, pack your bags, grab your, grab your bathers, um, and, and, and right can you grab some towels. There's nothing worse than going to the beach with no towels. Then you get to the beach, forgot the towels, bro, you have one job. It's like when my job when we go camping is to make sure that we've got coffee and the coffee uh, paraphernalia, you know, everything that we need, all the apparatuses or the apparati for the coffee, and I don't bring it, bro, you have one job. When you ask your friend, bro, I've got no charger, can you bring yours? When we catch up for May 2-4 weekend, don't worry, got you, fam. Turn up, bro, where's the charger? Sorry, I forgot it, one job. Get one job. When Nadia was, um, uh, when I was in the hospital with Nadia and she was about to give birth to Ryder, they took her bloods and, like, I hate blood. And so they're taking her bloods and as they took the needle out, a bit of blood spurred out from her, just a tiny drop, but the force of the, the, that, that main artery, that main vein, it popped that blood out and it hit the ground. It flew across the air like this and then landed on the ground. So I, 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 like, I hate blood. I saw it happen. And I fainted. I landed on the ground. Bam. Next thing I know, I wake up, you know, fuzzy, kind of like can't see properly, everything's kind of sounds echoing. And they've, they've whipped the, the cushions and the pillows out from behind Nadia and they've whipped the, they've, they've thrown them underneath my underneath my head. And uh, I'm now the one being taken care of. But my job was to be at the hospital looking after her. Come on, bro, you have one job. One job, stay standing. Couldn't fulfill it, fell on the ground. I was the best man for my, my best friend. Uh, certainly at that time, you know, we're not friends anymore. No, we are friends, <laughs> we're great friends. And so just my best man material. But, and so, you know, at the time I was his best man and, um, and I'm just joking, of course. And so, and I was best man and the best man's job is to have the rings. And so I had the rings, his rings, him and his, him and his fiance had their wedding rings in a, in a little box. And I'm at the wedding, and the wedding has started. So it's happened. And his friend, who's a wedding planner, comes up to me. He says, bro, what's up, man? How you doing? You good fan? Yeah, I'm great. And he says, best man today? I said, yes, sir. Got your speech? Yes, sir. Got the rings? No, sir. And he says, where are they? He says, that's okay. Where are they? And I said, bro, they're at my house. I can see them in my mind on the windowsill. And he says, what time is Amy supposed to arrive? And I was like, man, in about 15. He goes, how far away is your house? I said, about 10 minutes. He said, okay, we're cutting out fine. I'll distract Ben, you get the driver, go get the rings, come back. You know, let's assume Amy's gonna be a few minutes late. Should be no problem. I was like, bro, you're a lifesaver. Grab the driver, bro, we're gonna go. Cruise home, grab the, grab the rings, come back, turn up, see the bro. He's like, how'd you guys say, bro, you're a lifesaver, bro, thanks so much. I wouldn't have done it without you. He looks at me, you know what he says? Bro, you get one job. 
that they ask Jesus a question, which is sort of like this. And they say in Matthew 22, so we've just read Matthew 17, five chapters later, after he's kind of like done all the stuff and led up to the moment, and we've got Holy Week taking place, and they corner him. He's been doing all this crazy stuff, Jesus, and they corner him. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Jesus, teacher, they asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest, which I think those kind of those words are so synonymous, aren't they? To be the greatest of all time means that you're the first of all time. You're number one, top dog, numero uno. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the, the prophets hang on these two commandments. Last year, I was at Buckingham Palace. Well, no, actually, while I was, I was outside. It makes it sound like I was inside, which I think would be pretty cool. I was outside. I was on the street. And there was a, um, I was running along the road towards the palace. It's, it's just nice. It's called the Mall. It's a nice straight long road. Uh, it's long and long. Right into it. Right over the palace. And it's running along. And uh, probably, just listen to the shoulders. It's running along. And I started thinking to myself, this is before she passed away, may the Lord rest her soul. How cool would it be to meet the Queen? Longest serving monarch in history, without Christian. Her first Prime Minister was Winston Churchill. That's a good chat in and of itself. So I was running and I was imagining meeting the Queen. If I wanted to meet the Queen, there would be so many um, procedures, protocols, barriers, obstacles. And I would respect those. David Beckham may say, waited for nine hours as he walked past to place his respects to the Queen on the day of her passing. But that would pale in comparison, wouldn't it? To the amount of processes that the priests would have to go to to meet with the Lord in the Old Testament. Clothing they wore, breastplate, ephod, tunic, robe, turban, sash. The preparation and consecration that they needed, the food they ate, the water that they drank, the animals that they sacrificed. Speaking of, speaking of money changes and duds. The process would have been grueling but I think that, that all of that process translated now into the new covenant, we kind of expect that there are no processes, no rhythms, no procedures, nothing is needed. And I think that's where what we're reading about in Matthew 21 is so crucial. Excuse me, Matthew 17 is so crucial because Jesus clears the temple and lays a challenge to the believers and the priests, the religious leaders. But if we translate that Jesus was talking about his body, and now we see that the Apostle Paul uses that same language to talk about our body, then could it be that Jesus was leveling that challenge to us? Yet we think that because of what he's done for us, we, we no longer really need to do anything. We just kind of like receive. But I think we've begun to take his grace for granted. I think maybe God's grace has become an incredible entitlement for us. I've got four kids, and my job is to teach them parameters, to teach them love, primarily, but to teach them parameters, what they can and can't do, what they should and shouldn't say. What they need from me is teaching on the process and the values and the character of how to get 
those things in life that are important to them and to us. This is the scenario that Jesus here has presented. He's asked for parameters, isn't he? He wants, you know, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, is what Jesus is using as his source material at that time. And everybody has it. The priests have it. They know it off by heart. But they want a summary. So then God gave one to Moses and the Ten Commandments twice. But we want a summary of the summary. Have you read the book? This is a classic example. You read the book? No, 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 but I saw the movie. Read the book? No, I read the cliff notes. Uh, bro, so this is, this, this is a phrase that's always precedes someone talking nonsense for 30 minutes. Bro, so I heard of this podcast recently. So a podcast is someone's thoughts on a book they read or a movie they thought that someone else wrote. <laughs> which you are now telling me, which I'll repeat to someone else in a sermon. We're six or seven degrees away. But we want to break it now further and further and further. So here's the source material. Cool. What's the highlights? What are the keynotes? What are the bullet points? Jesus has asked the question of all the things that Ben said. What's the most important part? What's the most important command? He's so great. 613 Jewish rules. Thousands of recommendations, exhortations, encouragements in the Old Testament. We hear don't fear. We hear to cling to what is good. We hear all these different phrases through the scriptures. Ten Commandments, I think, is the most tangible example. We, For us, the Apostles' Creed, these key... And he just says this. You're one job. And your one job is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And Jesus cleared the temple as if to remind us, don't get it mixed up. Don't... Don't make it, don't necessitate the need for me to overturn in your life your priorities. Keep me where? Number one, it is a huge favor for us here. And he boils it all down to one key function where he says, you've got one job. And your one job, and my one job, and our one job is to minister to the Lord. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8 says, At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. At that time the Lord separated out the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, and note this, to minister to the Lord and bless his name to this day. That your one job is to love the Lord. Your one job is to worship Him, to bless Him. The Hebrews were freed from their oppressive slavery and bondage so that they could, and I quote, come away and worship the Old Testament rites in Exodus. That all of the men in that same book, and in Deuteronomy it is written, are to come away before me three times a year. The festivals in the Jewish calendar, the longest book in the Bible is a book full of song lyrics and the Psalms. The oldest book in the book of Job is a, a, a book in the Bible written about a man who didn't lose control of his praise. The most redemptive arc of human existence culminates in the coming of the Prince of Peace. And when he was here on the Monday, the second day of Holy Week, the day after Palm Sunday, he levels a challenge and says, don't get your priorities mixed up. And make sure that your faith is one that is for everybody. God in the flesh 
he condescends, he travels eternity to connect with you and with me and wants to remind us and we thank this Pharisee this day for asking this key question because it made Jesus enunciate it. And he said, and I quote, paraphrased of course, bro, you have one job and your one job is to minister to the Lord. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8 says, At the time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant. And one more time, let me say it, to stand before the Lord and minister to Him and bless His name to this day. Jesus has many names, doesn't He? Savior, Lord of Lords, the Sent One, Messiah, Prince of Peace. 80, 60%, I should say, not 80%, 60% of the references personally that were made towards Jesus in the New Testament were as rabbi. He was a teacher to them. But what has He become for us? I think for us, this progressive revelation of His identity over time of his character arc, of who he is to his people, I think has now become something of a watered-down version of, I think, what it should be and what he came to prove to us and what we can reflect on in the lead up to Easter to get our hearts right. First John 4.14 says, And we've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Romans 10 verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Interesting, he's received as the Savior, but we confess him as Lord in order to be saved. We accept him as Savior because it costs us nothing, and we neglect him as Lord because it costs us everything. Day of Savior is free, isn't it? Because the Savior does save him. I love, I love my Savior, Jesus, because He saves me. Which means that I don't have to get myself out of trouble because that's His job. He's my get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. Thank you, Lord. But when I have a Lord, a Lord instructs, He leads, He teaches, He guides. I don't want to swing the pendulum to a works-based, legalistic, tough, gritty faith. But I don't want to live in a faith where the Apostle Paul warned us not to abuse His grace. Here's what I know is this. In my life, my relationship with my wife, my kids, my friends, and my family, when I take them for granted, the quality in those relationships drops. But when I value and I'm exhorted in those relationships, the quality in those relationships increases. Being married to Nadia is a great joy because she's a mystery, because she's a woman. Because women are two things. They are perfect, and they, my friends, are mysterious. I, I feel like I'm like a murder mystery detective. You know the game Clue? I'm trying to figure it out, I'm trying to work it out. She's always giving me hints. She's always saying things and dropping clues, leaving breadcrumbs. The whole thing is a romance, isn't it? She's trying to pick up those clues and figure out what she likes. Our relationship with God is no different. He's leaving us hints. In fact, he did more than that. He wrote us a book. In fact, imagine if Nadia, if you're watching this, I would like one of these from you. A book, a handbook about how to relate to you. Everything that we need to know about God is in this book. There's nothing that you need to know about God that's not contained in the scriptures. We believe the holy God breathed. Theonoustos is the Greek word. God breathed into the scriptures, made them alive for you and me. Everything we need is here. Imagine if Nadia wrote one of these for me, but she didn't. So I've got to pay attention. I've got to focus. I've got to be sure to follow 
and pick up on the clues because I love it. Don't get lazy because you have a Bible and forget to pick up on the clues that God is dropping us in everyday life. See, our relationship with God is like a marriage. It's both finished and still going. The wedding day is over, but the marriage is still alive. The ceremony is complete, but the marriage is still a daily process. Be sure, be sure, be sure to take Jesus' challenge on the second day of Holy Week as he cleared the temple. And be sure to look in the mirror and say, God, if you came to clear my temple, what would you find? If you came to make sure that my priorities are straight, where would you be on that list? And understand that no one gets that exam 100% correct. No one walks away with a scholarship A+. All of us have work to do. And so that's why he came. Theologian Donald Bloch says, Yet though the work of Christ is finished for the sinner, that is not yet finished in the sinner. And part-time runner and street poet Levi Merichurch said, We need the blood, which is God's sacrifice for us, but we also need the Holy Spirit which is God working in us. Jesus did a great work for us and purchased the price so that we, may, we, we might be able to be made a temple in the first place, a dwelling of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. But we still need his work in us to make sure that that temple is still consecrated for his name. My one job is to minister to the Lord. And I suppose the question today is simply this. What does that mean to minister to the Lord? What does it mean to be someone who was going about life with a great sense of God's ministry? Well, rather than a three-point sermon, I just wanted to give you a couple of Hebrew words that I think might help us today, and I'll wrap up in just a few minutes. That to minister to the Lord is to serve, to admire, to exalt, to love. If you could write two words down for me today, and they'll come up on the screen. The first word is the word sharath, S-H-A-R-A-T-H. And that word is Hebrew, it means to minister, but a deeper translation is that it means to attend, to serve, or to wait on. And the second word is the word amad, A-M-A-D. And the word amad means to minister, but it means to stand, or abide, or continue, remain, to tarry, or to stand up. In the Old Testament, Sharaf was um, best exuded or best illustrated to us through the trimming of the wicks in the in the temple through the removing of ashes from from burnt offerings the putting out of the bread the assembly of the furniture the the placing of the ornaments the setting up of the tables and chairs that jesus would overturn sharath that's worship that's ministry to the lord the coiling the taping the checking and the kids the learning the lyrics the making the coffee the getting your kids to school the mundane, when done as an act of worship, serve as ministry to the Lord. Excuse me. But Ahmad, the Hebrew word in the Psalms, which says in Psalm 134 verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. That word is Ahmad. And it means to tarry, to stand, or to abide. Which I guess for us, on the one hand, understand that Ministry to the Lord can be very active, but at the same time to remain or to tarry or to linger or to procrastinate can mean the exact same thing to him. Ministry to the Lord is sometimes duty, but can also mean to remain. 
can sometimes mean work, but it can also mean to abide. It can sometimes be function, but it can also simply be to stand, procrastinate. With Sharaf, meaning your tasks are made, meaningful, are made meaningful. And with Ahmad, remaining is made beautiful. John 15, the Bible says that Jesus speaks about the vine and remaining in the vine. And that as we remain in him, he'll remain in us. So if he leveled to us a great challenge that day and overturned some things on the inside of us, he also said in John 15 that the answer to making sure that he is retained in the number one priority of our lives is simply to remain in him. That when cornered and asked, what's the greatest commandment? He simply said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. That as we lead into Easter, in this Lenten season, as we self-reflect, as we repent, and as we prepare, let's not assume no wrongdoing, let's not assume that we're perfect, but understand that Jesus came to shine a light in those parts of our lives, and he's doing that even right now, where he might want to overturn and adjust and flip some tables and chairs to make sure that we've got our priorities straight. And if you just have one job, your number one job is to minister to the Lord, whether that be to wait on tables for him or serve him through remaining. If you're here today and you've never engaged in that process of ministry to the Lord and loving Jesus and having Him as your number one focus and the centerpiece of your faith, if you've never served in worship, if you've never really remained because you're starting your journey, I'm glad that you tuned in today. There are people in this chat which will help you. There are prayer partners that will reach out to you right now. There's a button that's coming up which you can actually say, yeah, I want to pray that prayer and get my life right with Christ. And as you press that button and wait for that person, I guess the most important thing I can do as I bring this sermon to a close, as I land this plane, would be to pray a prayer and believe that in that moment, as we pray, your whole life could be changed in Jesus' name. And so friend, let's pray. I'll say one line and you repeat it back to me. And it goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you. I need you in my life. I ask you, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you so much, church. I think I'm preaching next week, too. I look forward to it. If I'm not, it's going to be great. But if I am, I'll see you then. See you later.